The invisible don't build great businesses, the unignorable do. Do you want to build a personal brand? Share your unique voice with the world? Welcome to the podcast exploring themes from the book Unignorable by Oliver Oust. In this series, Oliver talks to experts so you too can become unignorable. In this episode, Oliver speaks with Ronnie Krieger, General Manager of Europe at Patreon, about building a community. Community building is covered in the book as well. Unignorable is a podcast series for all those who want to build a personal brand or simply share their unique voice with the world. We have a very special guest today, Ronnie Krieger, and I'm very excited to speak to him about Patreon, where's the general manager of Europe, and also about his 25 years in music, tech, and the creative industries. Hi, Ronnie. Hi, Oliver. Nice to meet you. Yeah, very nice to meet you, and thank you for taking the time. I've been fascinated reading your, your CV and your background and your website. I mean, you've done so, so much, so you have so many questions and ideas. But maybe let's start with Patreon, where you are at the moment. You're the general manager for Europe. For those who do not know what Patreon is, maybe a quick introduction would be probably quite useful. Basically, I'm the general manager for Patreon, as you just mentioned. Patreon has had a lot of tremendous organic growth outside of the US, and last year decided that they now wanted to take the next step and uh, have a much better presence in the region, connect with the creators here, go through all the internationalizations that companies go through from languages, currencies, all this stuff. Yeah, they approached me about this role. And quite honestly, I wasn't really looking for a employment position at the time, but the opportunity was just so great. I think they're a perfect company for these times I gladly accepted. And we are now on a mission to make Patreon a household name in the European and EMEA region. Aside from that, I am also a member of various boards, the Deutsche Kulturrat, AI and Digitalization Board. And I'm also part of the board of VUT, which is the German Association of the Independent Music Industry. These are basically unpaid honorary positions that I'm happy to contribute to. Yeah, I think what's what's fascinating about Patreon is that it puts the artist at the center and allows artists to have some sort of predictable income. And we all know that in the platform economy, it's usually the platform that gets the better deal and artists often struggle to get some return on all the creative work and efforts they're making. Yeah. So how, how exactly does that work and what do artists need to do to participate? Yeah, so basically Patreon allows any kind of creator in any art form to have a subscription income for whatever they would like to do. This can be pure support-based, like for an NGO, for instance, I love your activities, I would like to support what you do. And contrary to crowdfunding, it's not a project that I once contribute to. It's actually a very reliable, steady income for the creators, which is amazing. As you mentioned in the intro, I spent most of my life in music and music tech, And as a musician, it's such a fantastic and wonderful scenario to imagine that regardless of playing concerts, regardless of releasing records, I just know that I'm going to have a pretty predictable income every single month and I can be creative, I can explore new ideas and never really have to worry about having to release a record to pay my bills or having to play concerts, etc. So it's quite a unique scenario where I really have almost like a, a guaranteed monthly income, which is very, very predictable because most of the patrons, how we call the supporters, usually stay with creators for an unusual long amount of time. Before I knew Patreon, before I joined, I thought, well, people might just 
you know, pay money once or stay on for two or three months and then they hop on to the next or they cancel. But actually, the supporter behavior on Patreon is pretty long term. So most people really have a long and very close relationship with the creators that they support. And in the case of Patreon, because it was founded by a musician to solve his own problem with the current industry, he basically put the creator in the focus from the start. And that's still the mission of the company. So Essentially, Patreon takes a fee of 5 to 8% margin. And if you compare that to any other area of the business, where it's usually somewhere between 20 and 50, mm -hmm. that's unusually low. And what do the patrons get in return? That really differs. That's the benefit of Patreon is that we don't give these kind of boxed-in scenarios for creators. They can really do whatever they want. They own all of the communication. They own all of the rights. They know who their patrons are. There's no algorithms in the way that control how they can communicate, etc. So that basically leaves the creators to do whatever they always wanted to do. In some cases, that is exclusive behind the scenes looks where you could see how the artist created. So all of a sudden, it's no longer just about the final outcome. It's the whole procedure. And that can also be very interactive if I as a creator want that to be the case. So it's also stimulating my creativity. We have a lot of musicians and other artists on the side. And if you take a band like Einstürzen und Neubauten, they've been recording music since 1980. I would expect that that becomes a pretty difficult process because after you've recorded quite a bunch of records, you follow certain routines and you're trying to do everything in your power to break the routines to get a new creative stimulus. Mm. The interactive component that this fan base allows for can also be quite interesting. You could also see it as a modern version of a fan club where, you know, it's all kinds of extra content, where it's educational material, where it can even be merch. We do worldwide merch fulfillment. So you could do t-shirts that are exclusive to your supporters. You could do any kind of creative scenarios. We have painters who have higher price tiers where they send individual art pieces to their supporters every single month. So really, there is no limit to what you can really do, as long as it fits our trust and safety guidelines, of course. That's really interesting. And it seems to me that it's very, very now that in sort of the, the big digital overwhelm, what, what is really working well in order to be seen, in order to become unignorable, is to have a special relationship with your fans, your followers, your community, and provide something special that goes beyond a product or something you've created but um, sort of a special relationship. Is that fair? And is that what you see on Patreon as well? That is absolutely the key. I think if you're a creator and you love the idea of Patreon, but you have absolutely no interest to interact with your fan base, your Patreon scenario will fail because that's what it ultimately is about. It's about that relationship that you have with your fans. I understand that there's many introverts and you might not feel comfortable to be completely interactive. That is fine, people are understanding of that. And also keep in mind that it's also about the fan base amongst each other. So if you are looking at social media, Uh, today, which, you know, is a blessing and a curse, uh, both in itself, you have all this hate, you have, you know, a, a low threshold for uh, negative comments, etc. In the Patreon realm, it's not just the interaction that the creator can have with its fans, but also the fans between each other. And they're all fans. There is no haters uh, amongst them. So they can talk very freely. So if you have a creator talking about body positivity, about sexual education, about 
any kind of topic that might be a little bit tricky in the modern world or that might see a lot of hate, you will be in this protected little bubble of like-minded people. So that is a really positive environment. It's interesting. And in the book, I talk a lot about sort of minimal viable audiences and, you know, better to be famous for a few than chasing lots of followers on Instagram. I mean, it's nothing wrong with having lots of followers, but it's often, you know, very energy sucking activity, especially when you start out and trying to build your brand, trying to build your creative endeavors. And to my mind, it makes much more sense to be very clear about the people you want to interact with, be very active and engage with them, and rather focus on a hundred or a thousand or a small group of people, focus on deeper relationships with fewer people rather than lots and lots and lots of followers who are pretty disengaged. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And Patreon has a vision where we are really for your hardcore audience, for the people that really love what you do. Regardless of what type of art you create, you will always have these people that might have liked you know, one picture you posted or one piece of music that you created or one blog post that you wrote and don't really like everything you do. So for many of the elements of your creative process, Patreon might not be the only model that works. So we are basically always in the context of a larger vision for a creator and we play one part of it. And traditionally, we play the part that's having the best reward for your work because, again, we have a very low margin. We are talking about monetization from super fans, etc. But it, there's still a place for everything else, for these occasional interactions of, I just want to buy this one track you released or I just want to buy this one art piece. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I'm still perfectly fine with people who want a wide reach and want to have millions of fans on Facebook or elsewhere. That's that's perfectly fine. It also has its meaning and its place. But as you said, I think the most rewarding element is definitely the ones of the people that really care the most about you and vice versa. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Do you have maybe an example of creator or group of creators on Patreon that have done that really well and found a very original way of interacting with the audience? Oh, there's, there's just an incredible amount of, you know, we have a guy on Patreon and he makes a living from underwater habitats for hamsters. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, just imagine that telling your parents like, you know, I want to make a living from that. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Every day I discover things that I didn't even know existed. And then knowing that there's people in the world who support it and appreciate it and have fun or pleasure seeing it. We have really every kind of comp combination that you could possibly imagine. And also it's not set in stone. So I might have an idea today and I might want to be on Patreon for educational content or something. And if you're a creative person, you, you change your interest, you change your projects that you work on. And another benefit of Patreon really is that the fan base usually follows this journey, or at least most of these people. For instance, one of the most famous artists on Patreon is Amanda Palmer, who had this massive media feedback a couple of years ago when she was the first musician to raise 1.2 million US dollars for an album on Kickstarter. Until that point, that was kind of unheard of. And the whole industry was like, wow, that's that's amazing. How, how is this even possible for this former singer of the Dresden Dolls? It's not even, you know, Mick Jagger or something. She quickly realized that as a creative person, she had no interest in basically pitching each and every individual creative idea that she had as a massive project and then fundraising for each project. And then she quickly discovered the beauty of Patreon saying like, look, this is a creative journey. And I don't have to pitch every single idea that I have. 
follow me in that journey and see where it leads us. And some of these ideas might even come from your patrons and you can ask them about feedback, what is more interesting for you. And it's a really interesting journey for a lot of different creators. What I find a little bit surprising is that you find a lot of patrons who are willing to pay for creativity because that's often a challenge for artists and creatives online, isn't it? So is there any any way you reach out to potential patrons? How do they find the artists on your platform? So basically that is is essentially down to the individual creator. Patreon has been originally constructed as a pure SaaS platform. We give creators the technical tools to build the membership. We are not a place where you find fans and followers. That really ultimately, again, differs by creators. Some have their main audience through newsletters. Some have it through their own website. Some use YouTube, some use Instagram, some use Facebook or whichever platform. And then they basically tell their fans and listeners and supporters that they are on Patreon and what else they do on Patreon, like we do this exclusive interview or whatever else it is. And then basically the listeners of the show, etc., decide to support them on Patreon. But it's always very individual and always very direct. So we don't really participate in that journey of finding fans. Obviously, when you come to the level where Patreon is right now, you're ultimately almost forced into becoming a discovery platform. So without really being able to give a clear outlook there, we are definitely exploring ideas of how that could look like. But mm. that was originally never intended. Yeah. Understood. And are there any tactics or tools that sometimes artists and creatives apply on Patreon that just don't work or where you've reached the conclusion that that's just not the right strategy for the platform? I would say there's basically two. One is, as I mentioned before, if you're not planning to be in any way interacting with your fan base, if you don't have any plans for engagement, it's not going to work. Mm. Just basically setting up a page, being there and then saying, look, now find me is not going to work. And also the other element is when you, for instance, use uh, social media platforms to build your original fan base, some creators feel like, okay, I posted it once, now it's going to work. <laughs> But what they always forget is that they never really know quite how many people of their fan base they have actually reached through social media. Yeah. It might be a very small percentage. And even these people will need a nudge every once in a while. Usually it works a little easier for podcasts because they have a very high frequency of output. So if I'm running a weekly podcast show, I can mention it once or twice in every podcast show and my listeners will hear about me being on Patreon quite often. Um, so that is definitely the two things that I would see for creators that fail is things that they don't do, mm. don't want to interact or not making sure that their fan base actually knows that they're on Patreon. What do you think is the direction of travel for building personal brands for artists or other individuals, business owners, etc.? I'm asking because obviously everything is in flux in a way. So we're all you know, changing roles, changing locations more frequently. We're all in a position where we can have enormous freedom online and also in the real life that we can build our brands and share our unique voices with the world and basically pursue our passions. At the same time, the bar is pretty high and it's pretty difficult often to get the visibility that maybe some people deserve and maybe some people who don't deserve it get a lot of visibility so yeah. how do you think this will all shake out and, and develop over the next few years 
So I think ultimately, you know, one of the issues that we're facing is that there is so much more volume, so much more output. So it becomes a lot harder to compete. I mean, you know, when I started in the music industry, you know, the output of records being released was at a completely different level than it is now. I remember when I was leading the music departments at Beatport, which is an electronic music download store, kind of like the iTunes for electronic music. And I remember the day when we reached 1,000 tracks released a week, and I thought that was absolutely <laughs> insane. Now knowing that it's in the millions, it's just crazy to see. And obviously, you know, the, the first instinct in me would be like, wow, why would I even want to be a musician if I know there is a million other tracks going to be released this week? But then ultimately, we have to remind ourselves that most creators don't have a choice It's like, you know, they do what they do because they have to. It's their passion. They need to. It's a release. It's it's something that they really want to do. And they don't ultimately care about how many other people are doing stuff because they're so convinced that what they do is heartfelt and authentic, etc. I think what is ultimately changing is the fact that there will be more and more and more competition. But what people now realize is that this old school idea of the volume game of like, I need a million fans, I need 10 million fans, I need 100 million fans, or whatever else your benchmark was, is no longer valid because of this super low monetization levels, whether it's ad-based, whether it's streaming revenues, etc. It's just so tiny that it doesn't work anyway, or you have to be at gigantic numbers. And I think what people will realize is that there is other models like Patreon and a few others where you don't actually need millions of fans. A little while ago at the VUT, we decided to put out a little online streaming calculator where you can basically calculate how much an artist would make from an amount of streams on any of the usual platforms. When I looked into Patreon and when I was starting my job there, I basically just wanted to do a comparison. We quickly realized that a lot of musicians, a very popular pricing tier for the supporters was around 10 euros. So I wanted to see if I have something like a benchmark of a million streams, which for many, many musicians is still very hard to reach. It's obviously easy for, you know, Eva Max or Lady Gaga or whatever. But for most musicians, a million streams is actually really hard. And I wanted to see what that would equal in the Patreon universe. And I was calculating that basically, if you have 100 people paying 10 bucks a month to you, you get the same payment as a million streams on Spotify. And so I think a lot of people will really ultimately realize the power of the direct relationships with their best customers, their best supporters, etc. And they will shift away from that volumes game of it only works if I have millions of fans or hundreds of thousands of supporters, etc. No, it doesn't. You just need to have a loyal fan base that really loves what you do and is willing to pay you fairly. A hundred supporters on Patreon paying a tenner a month equals the same kind of revenue that a million streams or downloads on, on Spotify bring you per month. That is, those are crazy numbers. And another way of looking at this would be to say you have a thousand true fans who maybe pay you ten per month, then you have a pretty decent income that most artists would probably be quite happy with. And th- those are very compelling numbers, I think. And in my experience is often, uh, whether it's with artists, creators or, or business owners, that they think we talk about personal branding and, you know, getting the word out and sharing your work and your, your insights. The mental barrier is often that they also think you need to build a big audience and often when you talk about personal branding, they think influencers, they think huge Instagram following. But in the same way as you, you talk to artists about this, we talk to businesses and, and entrepreneurs. And now actually be a thought leader in your niche, be a trusted expert for those thousand people because 
the capacity of your business may only be 100 a year. If you get 150 people interested in your work, then you're already oversubscribed. You can raise your prices. You can choose the most interesting projects and people to work with. Um, the way I like to put it is, you know, say no to the hamster wheel, just putting <laughs> up content on all channels, firing on all cylinders. But I think this is a fool's errand for most people. I couldn't agree more. And even more, uh, it often prevents them from doing anything. You know, I talk uh, in the book about being very strategic. So basically, rather than doing nothing, then doing something in a patchy way and from time to time, and then maybe give up or move to something more systematic over time due to trial and error, basically reverse engineer the whole process and be very strategic and based on your strategy, develop systems uh, and then find the tactics that work for you. And a tactic for, for an artist may be Patreon because they then understand that, that you know, they only need a hundred or a thousand true fans in order to support their creativity. Yeah, I think another negative side of the volume game is often that you really don't take the time or don't even care about how happy your customers are. Often, companies, businesses, creators, whatever, lose sight of their original customers. And if you have, you know, happy, satisfied customers, that's a very, very powerful base to build on because ultimately they will tell everyone else. So it really is a more solid base for organic growth. But if you always forget the early supporters, if you always look to the next thousand and don't value the people that you have right now, that's often one of the reasons why businesses fail. Yeah. If you would have to put a number on it, how important do you think uh, is word of mouth? It's incredibly important. I mean, you know, when Patreon had never really proactively put any kind of effort into Europe or Asia, etc. And just seeing how many creators in these regions are already on Patreon today, that's basically all due to the fact that other creators have told their friends, if like, look, this is amazing for me. It's a steady income. I can do this and that. And that's how the company grew. So organic growth for Patreon is incredible. If we were going to stop getting new creators and just basically focus on the creators that we have today, them telling their friends about their experience, we would still have tremendous growth. Yeah. So um, let's talk about you a little bit, because your 25-year your career is really impressive. And I don't want to list everything you've done, but you've been, or you are, an artist, DJ, producer, been PR agent, uh, work with the media, radio, labels, artist management, distribution, in retail, et cetera, et cetera, social media marketing. I have so many questions on this, but where, where do I start? So this is pretty impressive. And I wonder what sort of the main takeaways are from your side in terms of building a career in obviously always related fields, tech, music, creative industries, but also looking at it from very different angles as well. Is there any sort of takeaway or learning that you could share with everyone? Yeah, I mean, I, essentially, I would say that from the traditional concept, I'm the worst person you could ask about advice for a career. <laughs> I never had a career plan my whole life. I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do something with music. But, you know, when I was at the end of the 80s, early 90s, in order to make a living from music, that was kind of like an abstract idea. So I thought, okay, I should do something proper. What I wanted to do is get the best kind of education that I could, get a solid kind of base for a future career outside of music and make it as short as possible. 
looking at all the kind of things that I could have studied at the university, I just realized it would have taken way too long. So the shortest detour that I could take was the job of a banker. Because if you become a banker, if you do the apprenticeship in Germany, it's usually two and a half or maximum three years. It's a pretty solid job. If you have a degree, you're pretty safe. Your family is going to be happy. So I did that. That was basically the compromise. I had absolutely no love for the job. I couldn't care less. But ultimately, later in my career, I realized that it was kind of helpful, even though it at first seems a bit abstract to combine a banking job with music. But I quickly realized that it was quite helpful when I moved back into music. Mm. So this was the first detour to say, look, family, I've done something good. And basically, immediately, once I had my IHK degree of being officially a banker, I decided to move out of it and move into music. From there, basically my entire life, I just always trusted my gut and followed a route of curiosity of what was the most interesting, the most appealing to me and what it is that I really wanted to do. I always had the sense of like, if I really want to do it, I can do anything. So for instance, when I wanted to get into the music industry, I was in a band, I was doing some music, we were kind of successful in our area, but I didn't really have any experience in the music industry. So what I did I do? I called the, in my opinion, best and biggest independent music distributor at the time. And I said, I have no experience. I have a lot of passion. I would really love to work with you. It so happened that they had a couple of people to work for a two-day trial. I did it too. And then a few days later, I got a phone call. Can you start at this job? And I said, yes. That was basically the first job that I've gotten. And then from there, I've just really tried to do a good job at what I do, try to look at the way things are done right now, try to find ways to do it better or faster or more efficient. And that's been basically what happened across my life. And then when a new opportunity was presented to me, I was waiting to see, is this more impactful? Does it interest me more than what I currently do? And for many years, that cycle was mostly around four years. And that seemed to be somehow of the magic cycle of, I've learned enough in this position, I made an impact, now it's time to find something else. And then when things became digitized, and when I had a bit more experience and build a bit of a CV, obviously more opportunities uh, get presented to you. So then the cycle sometimes got a little shorter, because I'm very bad at resisting great ideas and great opportunities. So in the later couple of years, I've been taking on more different projects than early on. Yeah, and the word that comes to mind is resilience. Let me know if that is correct. But you said at the beginning that you're the worst person to ask for career advice, but maybe actually you're a very good person to ask for career advice because I'm a strong believer in resilience and that, yes, you can have a career plan, but then an epidemic happens. What are you going to do? Or a recession happens or you lose your job or whatever happens. So I think resilience and a strong reputation or brand that you can take with you is actually extremely helpful in this day and age. We no longer work in the same organization usually all our lives. You're also a tough mother and you, you're CrossFit enthusiasts and all these things. So it seems to me that you've built a lot of resilience. And usually, you know, I've changed jobs in countries and moved around. And we all know that that's often quite difficult and you have to adapt and you have to 
face certain challenges and difficulties and overcome them uh, and you get stronger and better every time you do it and that obviously prepares you for any unforeseen challenges as, as many of us have faced this year would you say that that's true for you as well resilience and adaptability and building your own brand and framing your own career which you can do you know you can frame your career on your own website which is what you're doing as well regardless of all the positions and turn that you know some may see as oh those have been a lot of different roles you had into actually strength of yours that you're very adaptable you're very resilient and you're always up for a new challenge yeah there's a few things i could say there one absolutely grit uh, resilience all of that is definitely traits that somehow i have when there is a big challenge when there is a difficult situation usually in these kind of scenarios i'll be the first one to say yeah let's do it and that has been the case through most of my life and also you know when you're talking about crossfit when you're talking about tough mother it's the same kind of principle like a few seconds in your heart rate is jacked and you just know okay i need to keep going one rep at the time and it's going to be fine i also did this for the first time ever which was super fun this 24m rep competition last year was a team where basically you're working out non-stop for 24 hours. Each hour you have one type of exercise that you do. So it's like one hour of pull-ups, one hour of squats or whatever it is. Again, it was so attractive to me to see if I could push my body to do this for 24 hours. Yeah, I think that's definitely a character trait of mine. I love challenges. I love finding solutions. That's definitely describes me, me quite well and has also prepared me for a lot of career situations because it is part of success to not give up when things get tough because that's really when the greatest employees will shine that step up and say, look, let's, I don't know how, but we'll somehow find a solution. Let, let's give it a try. That's really, really, really important. And then also during my life, I have this constant struggle. I struggle between what is better, being a generalist or being a specialist. I am way too curious in too many things to ever become a specialist. And for the earliest part of my career, if you like, I considered that a weakness. Because, you know, when you're ambitious, when you want to be good at what you do, mm. if you're not the best in the world or the best in the country or the best at the company or whatever else it is, that feels like failure. I had to kind of make my peace with the understanding that I'm a pretty good generalist, that you can put me in pretty much any kind of situation and I'll do okay. And that that as a strength was something I struggled with for many years because uh, being ambitious, I always felt I had to become the best at something. And then the, the difficult part was that is that the better you get, you find different people to compare yourself to. So, you know, when I started CrossFit, to use another sports example, I was comparing myself to the best at the gym and then it was the best CrossFitters in Germany and then it was the best CrossFitters in the world. You're never satisfied because you're never number one. Over the years, I kind of found my peace with that. I still strive to be good, but I understand that there's a power in being a generalist. That's very smart. And I think, yeah, I, th I think you can obviously be successful being a generalist and a specialist. But my inclination is that as a generalist, it may be harder at the beginning of the career when people like to specialize more, but it's yeah. easier and more fulfilling further down the line, maybe in the second quarter, third quarter of your career, when you're sort of more senior and being more senior often requires having insights into many different areas and understanding many different areas and sort of drinking from a fire hose. So the longer you work on a particular subject, the less knowledge you gain in that area because you already know so much. But 
then you move to a different field or a related field. And you again, you're drinking from the fire hose. And to me, there's also fuels my passion and this lights my fire and, and keeps me going because it would be quite boring to do the same things I did when I was 30, when I'm at 45. So I'm totally with you. And I like also a bit of the combination of going deep into some subjects but I would also say I'm more of a generalist and everything that's related to communication and reputation, obviously. But I like to have a good understanding of everything from social media management to media, to CEO communications, to crisis, to writing books, publishing, and so on. And that that's quite fulfilling. And I think these different areas also reinforce each other and inform each other and i think especially by writing books which i always wanted to do it's always been a passion of mine i found a, a space for writing books in my personal brand but really i really want to do it and always wanted to do it that has really sharpened my thinking on a lot of the issues we work with and really forces you to think very hard and very deep about um, certain subjects but once you've written the book great i mastered this now let's move on to to slightly different topic yeah i find this highly fascinating like writing a book is such an ultimate treat to me because I think knowing how long great books often take to write, I don't think I would have the power to stick through it. I mean, I obviously never tried, but it seems such a lengthy project. And I do have these deep dive elements too. When I discover a topic or a new author or a new musician, etc., I don't read one book of an author and say, this was amazing. Then I want to read everything else that person has ever written. It's the same as musicians. If I discover a new artist that I didn't know before, I want to listen to everything they did. But it's usually kind of deep dive moments like sprints in like in an agile process. It might be weeks, it might be a month or two months. But the idea of sitting there for a year or however long it takes to just focus on one project and just write a book, that is an incredible amount of discipline. I'm not sure with all the resilience and grit I have, maybe when I'm older, maybe I'll give it a try. <laughs> so it's interesting what you say. And uh, I, I find it hard to believe that, you know, for the, the discipline or grit to write a book when you do, uh, you know, tough mother races. But I, I know it's a different kind of discipline. And to be honest, I failed a few times over the years because I sat down to write a book. And then obviously you're busy, you have a job, you have family, et cetera, et cetera. So it never really happened. The breakthrough a couple of years ago was, to figure out how to actually get a book done without writing it. In the sense that through the podcasting and reading about TED Talks, I figured out that it's actually smarter to record, transcribe it, and use that as a first draft. And this is what we've done here as well with Unignorable and also with my previous book, Mastering Communications, that I have a script for each chapter, then I record the chapter on audio, you know, the software transcribes it, and then you start editing and putting it all together. Now, it's still a long process, and obviously the, the second half of the process, you have to actually sit down and write and edit, but it probably cuts the process short by a third to 50%, I would say. So rather than a year, I spent about six months on the book, and I think without corona, it wouldn't happened. And also, you can make it more of a team effort, which is really fantastic. If you record it, someone in the team can then take it and whip it into shape, and then I take over again, and it goes back to someone in the team who can edit it further, question certain choices of example, or make suggestions. So it's also more, more of a team effort, which I quite enjoy, rather than uh, the low only journey of a writer at his kitchen table i think that wouldn't be something i could pull off and, and basically i failed doing that so if you if you're interested we can offline talk about this a little bit more and also in the book i talk about you know how to actually write a book and what are the questions you should ask yourself but it is something that's entirely doable and it's something that you can pull off in half a year 
Uh, and for us now, the focus is obviously on, you know, making sure the world knows about and the book finds its audience. So that's the next task, which uh, is also relatively new territory because book marketing is sort of a discipline in itself. But like you, I'm, I'm sort of like to dive into these new projects and ideas and, you know, expand my knowledge. I wanted to ask you about your own personal brand. I mean, you have a very strong personal brand, but is it something you actually curate, you look after, or is it just, well, the work speaks for itself? But how active are you in shaping it and framing the story around your reputation? Not at all. And I've never, <laughs> never been. So at the very beginning of my career, I never had a career goal. Mm -hmm. All I wanted to do is be good at the particular job at hand and do the best that I can If the best that I can wouldn't have been enough, that's okay. But I wanted to be able to give the best that I can. I was always of the opinion that if that is my motto, if I always do the best that I can, eventually things will be fine. And that's how it turned out in the end. I never cared. I remember, you know, being in Berlin in the 90s during the whole club explosion, the early movement of techno and all of this. A lot of clubs had like the VIP setups and you had like the membership cards, the little pins that you could put on, on your keychain to get free entrance, etc. And even though I was part of the music industry and I could get on any guest list, I never really cared. I never really enjoyed hanging out at VIP places, invite only events or going to particular events because those are the ones where you're seen, etc. For a little while, When I was an executive at Beatport, I was approached by a couple of headhunter agencies and they, they kind of invited me to these startup meetups and business meetups, etc. And I found these so incredibly boring and it was not really about passion. This whole idea of creating a startup in order to sell a startup but not really knowing what it's about and then pivoting the idea until I find the idea that I can eventually turn into a business. All of this was so abstract for me because... In my world, it was always about passion. I care for something, and then eventually that might turn into a business, but that's not the goal in the first place. So I've never, ever in my whole life done anything to I, – I wouldn't even call myself a brand. I really didn't care. When I was still releasing records either, I didn't build on my artist name. I just gave myself new names the whole time. That was part of the beauty, the anonymity, and – seeing what happens if no one knows who you are and putting out a new record under a different name and not building on previous accomplishments, etc. I don't ever think about it really in, in any way. I just know that, you know, for the most part of my life, I was able to give the best I could do at that time. And sometimes it worked really well and sometimes it didn't work so well, but I still gave it my best. So that's really all I care about. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I really admire you having pulled off such a distinguished career in, in all these different sectors, but uh, always following your passion and being such a creative person. Ronnie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us. I really appreciate that. You also support so many creatives and artists through Patreon. I think that's a fantastic way to ensure that artists and creatives have a good income and can rely on that and uh, don't have to live hand to mouth, which is, which is, I think is a real shame because we all need creators. We all need artists. We all need musicians and DJs and people who, you know, lighten up our lives and make them better and, and you know, not just uh, the utilitarian approach, but I think that's what makes us human and that's what makes life worth living. So thank you so much. Well, for me, everyone has what it takes to be unignorable. Everyone has what it takes to build a personal brand if they choose to do so. And the only thing left to do is to start. So thank you for listening and I hope you check out the other episodes as well. And until then, goodbye. Find out more at oliveraust.com. <laughs>